Welcome to the Locate 852 podcast, bringing you insights on how you can build and scale your business with social platforms. Hosted by the leading Facebook ad strategist in Hong Kong, entrepreneur, branding expert, and the founder of Locate 852, Chris Chung. If you're a sports fanatic, chances are you own at least one jersey or ball from your favorite player or team. The guest we have on today has revolutionized this industry. Joining us today is Brandon Steiner, founder of Steiner Sports and is a legend in the world of sports marketing and specifically sports memorabilia. Steiner Sports today generates $40 million in annual revenue and employs more than 100 people. Brandon in 2004 partnered up with the Yankee Stadium to provide fans authentic Yankees memorabilia and one-of-a-kind fantasy experiences. Brandon has worked with some of the biggest athletes in the world and is now sharing with us some of the lessons he has learned along the way. In this episode, Brandon shares with us his story of growing up and how he initially started a paper route at the age of 12. The two lessons that his mom taught him that has stuck with him ever since. Why is it that sometimes success gets in the way of more success? How disappointment and ego is the enemy? His thoughts on value proposition and how you differentiate a good one from a great one. How important is understanding, agreement, and commitment when hiring, and much more. If you guys are curious as to how I'm able to help businesses scale and grow on-demand leads using Facebook advertising, then go to locate852.com slash ultimate ad template to download my ultimate ad template that outlines everything you need to know step-by-step in order to create highly converting Facebook ads starting today. As for now, let's get right into the show. So Brandon, you've built Steiner Sports up from ground up over the years and had um, incredible success with it. But take us back to 12-year-old Brandon that started a paper out at 12. How did that happen and why? Well, I mean, I think a lot of times, you know, people want to have all this uh, passion and, and they want to get this gut feeling and they want to get, um, you know, this this certain kind of spiritual power that comes over you that helps you see the light. And I tell people all the time, sometimes, you know, as a kid, I saw the light. Unfortunately, it was the refrigerator light because <laughs> the refrigerator was empty. So, you know, the 12-year-old Brandon was broke. You know, his family was probably going through his hardest period of time. Single home. My mother was uh, not well. And we were just scrapping, you know, welfare, just trying to make ends meet. I mean, I talk about it somewhat simply now, but, you know, when you're a 12-year-old and you're hungry and you don't have clothes and you don't have stuff, it's it can have a profound effect. I mean, I still think it affects me to this day. So, you know, at 12, I was already working a few jobs. And I, I think one of the more pivotal moments for me was, was when I started my paper out, um, just because I went down and it was an opportunity to win a box of candy bars. So I'm scrapping. I'm trying to find people to buy the newspaper, and I, I can't do it. So I want to win that box of candy bars. Because I know a box of candy bars would have been big. It was a complete money grab, and I was working for money, you know, trying to make money. And when I went home and I told my mother I was having a hard time finding people to buy the paper, she basically said, "You got to stop selling. You know, you got to figure out how to solve and serve. That's the key to going to build up a business." And uh, you know, it was really, uh, uh, you know, it was really hard to get my arms around that as a twelve-year-old. But you know, I started knocking on doors, and I had asked this older woman previously if she'd get the paper, and I knocked back on her door again. And I said to her, if I bring you milk and bagels on Sunday and milk during the week, would you get the paper delivered for me then? Because she didn't want to tip me. That's why she said she wouldn't get the paper delivered. So I went back and I knocked on her door and asked her if I brought her milk, bagels, and, and anything else she needed. And she said, yeah. Meanwhile, she knew everybody in the neighborhood. And I really quadrupled the size of my route. 
And what I really learned there is, first of all, that, you know, it's not about selling. It's about helping people solve mm. a problem they have. And if you can incorporate what you have into that, that's the key. And also, you got to differentiate yourself. You can't sell the same thing that many other people are selling. Just expect people to buy it. It's a formula for mediocrity and probably not going to work out for you. And I think we're seeing a lot of retailers going through that right now in this day and age. You know, a lot of them are selling the same things. You go into a lot of stores, it's the same old stuff. And then you wonder why Amazon has come, come in and kicked their butt because they figured out a way to solve and serve, you know, save you time, save you aggravation, get you something quick, you know, returns, this, that. So, you know, retailers really, in my mind, made their bed and they really enabled Amazon to come in because the retailers that were serving and solving and really helping you and went out of the way, they're, they're still going. You know, there's still some brands that are out there that are still doing well. But on the overall, retail got lazy and their margins got too big and somebody figured out a way to do it for cheaper, better, smarter, faster. And so from the age of 12 till starting Sinus Sports, did you, besides the paper route, were you, did you start any other businesses? I mean, I was a serial entrepreneur. I mean, every day I was thinking of another business to start or create. I was an odd kid. You know, that was 45 years ago. And, you know, people didn't really know what to do with me, you know. You know, the bagels, you know, I was baking bagels and I was hustling. I was selling knishes on the beach. Um, I was selling T-shirts in high school. You know, I was doing anything I could do uh, to make a buck. But one thing I knew, and, and it's really important for entrepreneurs out there to understand, is that as many different things as I did, you know, up in school, up at Syracuse, I was creating parties and doing events. and But I didn't rush to go start my own business. Mm. And people don't realize I, I didn't start my own business until I was uh, 28, 29 years old and never tried to. You know what I mean? I had worked on a whole series of businesses and things that I enjoyed doing. And I think what I feel is getting lost a lot of times with people with the entrepreneurism. And I'm a huge entrepreneur fan and I'm a, I love when people are getting into it. But there is a lot of tactical and blocking and tackling that you must learn above and beyond just coming up with a big idea. You know, you got to be able to be able to do the fundamentals. And some of that stuff is just about working for other people, grinding it out, learning how business gets done, how accounting gets done, marketing, PR, firing, hiring, and all that sort of thing. And I think people lose sight of that just because they've got the big idea. But expediting, I've seen a lot of great ideas go by the wayside because in expediting the idea, you need people and how to handle people and all those things I just mentioned. So I, my mom was really big on, when I graduated, not starting a company, even though I probably could have. I'm not sure if I would have gotten anywhere near as far as I did because I went to go work for three or four big companies and learn how business got done, learn how to put a suit and tie on, learn how to go into a board meeting, read a P&L. And I really can't emphasize enough patience you know, to younger people that are hustling. And there's so many younger people out there that are so much smarter than I've ever seen I love what I see out there with the enthusiasm and the energy and commitment. It's just breathtaking. I mean, I'm so excited when I see th this younger generation now. It's maybe better than I've ever, ever seen it. And I think they're going to do better than we've ever seen it. But patience, you know, and making sure that not only you do it, but you can do it and make a difference, not only for the moment, but the real key is to have significance to be able to do it over a long period of time. You know, I had Steiner for over 30 years. So, you know, that's 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 what you want. You don't want to just be able to go come up with something. You don't bust your hump, kill yourself in hopes that one day you don't do it. 
you know, you want to do it as long as you can because you want to be the best at it and you want to make a difference. And you, your goal is not to make a lot of money and retire. Your goal is to make a lot of money and make a difference and then keep doing it so you can make even a bigger difference. And in order to do that, you got to have the stamina and you need to have the fundamentals. And I, I can't emphasize I see kids opting not to go to college. And I know that's a controversy in itself or just right away they want to start their own business. But it's really not the way to go. I'm still a fan of going to work for high quality people that work at high quality companies and learning, uh, le learning how business gets done. And am I correct to say that you created Steiner because you wanted to buy a car and not take the train? Well, yeah, I mean, people always say, you know, you know, obviously I had a big part of creating the collectible business and turning it into a business. And, you know, I was doing mostly marketing, which I still do to this day, marketing of athletes and talent to help businesses grow. And at the time, I, I really was on the train every day. It was driving me crazy. And I'm on the train one day and I was looking at this picture of Mark Messier. He just won the Stanley Cup. And sure enough, um, I said, man, if I could get Mark to sign 15,000 of these, you know, I bet I could go buy that car. So it took me like four months to track Mark down. Mark Messier was a six-time Stanley Cup champion, maybe one of the greatest hockey players of all time. And when he came to New York, there was a big emotional buzz because there was this curse. We hadn't won a Stanley Cup in 54 years. So, you know, understanding the market is always important. You know, it's not just about coming up with a good idea, but understanding how your idea fits into the market that exists. And when emotions are high and there seems to be a dryness uh, and a need for what you're about to bring, that adds to confidence, to knowing what you have is going to work. So anyway, I mean, I finally tracked Mark down and we ended up doing our first collectible deal. And that's how I started Steiner Collectibles, just a money grab where I just wanted to get off the train. And uh, sure enough, you know, when I did that deal, I was able to go buy a new Lexus. And it really wasn't anything about um, this, this epiphany that I had about getting photos signed and this and this and that. I mean, a lot of that came later. And, and there were a lot of moments that really helped me create Steiner into, you know, basically, you know, a worldwide brand, frankly. You know, and a brand that people really loved and cherished as far as getting them closer to the game and, and enjoying stuff that they experienced over and over and over again, which was my goal ultimately is to get people to not be able to, you know, if you had a great moment or a great experience, why should you forget it? You know, just like your wedding or the birth of your kids. And my goal was just to put up as many memories of collectibles up as you could and then let people relive them time and time again. When you were previously talking about growing Steiner, um, a line that you really said really stuck with me. And you said to really feel yourself, you must forget yourself. Um, can you just give me a little bit more context on that? Well, you know, and again, I, you know, I always think of the entrepreneur mindset, which is the money grab. Like, how do I make the most money? I want to be rich. I want to have a big car. But I think part of the process, you know, when in, in, in let's just say that's the goal here. And let, let's say you're you're in the process of trying to build something big and want to make a lot of money. I think there are different stages. and You'll have some setbacks and you're going to have some move forwards and some great days and some bad days. But I think that um, faith and gratitude is such a very important part of success. And I think nobody really talks enough about it when you look at success. A lot of getting a lot is being grateful for what you have. And having faith is, is being able to believe in something that sometimes you can't see, which is such an important ingredient for entrepreneurs because a lot of the things that you're trying to create and do, you really can't outright see. And you're trying to talk people into that. And you got to have faith. 
And you got to have the ability to believe that there's something above and beyond a higher, a higher power than what's the norm. And I think gratitude will, you know, it's like you forget yourself, you'll fill yourself. And that is, you know, trying to start on a day-to-day basis to leave a little bit of room for gratitude, to thank people, to show people that you appreciate what you have. Which most people are thinking about the love they're not getting, the money they don't have, the car that they should have, the raise and promotion that they don't understand why they didn't get. And those are all sometimes real, but they're they're not what you want your core of your day to be. And you want to make sure that you're grateful. And I always told my employees, like, listen, I know you probably think you're underappreciated and you're underpaid, but you should be grateful you have a job and you should be grateful for what you of the, the money you do have. And I think a lot of people that work often focus on the on the negative instead of the what they do have, the clients they do have, the business they do have. I had an athlete that was all over the place and I definitely had he's a big, big name and I had a bunch of what uh, his marketing, but there were a lot of times he would just do stuff on his own. And, and somebody came to my office and says, I don't know how you tolerate that. All the things you do for him. I don't understand how you put up with him doing all these other things sometimes on the side. And I said, well, you know, listen, he's a big name and I could get all in a tizzy about the fact that he should be bringing me that other business too, but I'm grateful for what I do have. There's a lot of people that would be really, really incredibly happy to have the little slice of business that I do have with this athlete. Would I like to have it all? Yes, but I am extremely grateful of the part of the business that I do have. And I think that goes that's true with a lot of businesses where you see uh, people that just find a way of focusing on what they don't have. And that's an immediate direction for you not to have any more. You won't get more when you think about what you don't have. If you want more, forget yourself. Think about others. Be grateful. Have faith. And is this why you think disappointment and ego is our biggest enemies as entrepreneurs? Well, you know, I think it's so important to understand how detrimental disappointment is. And you got to be careful how you forecast things because there's a lot of things going on in that brain. Like we have a whole world going on inside of our brain. There's us and then there's what's going on in our brain. And we're, you know, we're dictating a lot of the thoughts and things that have happened. And we're predicting a lot of things. You know, we have our own little CNN going on. CNBC going on in our heads. And I think it's really important that you got to make sure that you're being fair about what you're trying to forecast and predict because there's what the world gives you and there's what you think the world owes you. And when you have a gap between what the world owes you and what you think you deserve, that's disappointment. And all that is is a misforecast. It's because you thought that you deserved a certain amount of money or a raise and then there's what the, the boss or the business gave you. Now you're disappointed. But meanwhile, you're making more money than you ever thought you could make. I mean, you know, I, I was making more money than I ever thought I was going to make. And here I am disappointed that I wasn't making you know, a million dollars. I was only making 700000 Meanwhile, I didn't even have enough money to, you know, to, to, to buy breakfast or lunch. You know? I mean, here I am now. And that's my forecast. Now that I've decided what I thought I was worth. And then there's what the world decided that I was worth. And then there's the gap. And now I'm disappointed. Now I'm feeling like I got cheated. So it's really important when you forecast, and you see it on Wall Street all the time, like a company made $2 billion last year and the stock goes down because they forecasted $3 billion or $2.5 billion. I mean, $2 billion is an incredible amount of money. We always do this all the time. And that disappointment, what ends up happening as you get older, it starts piling up and starts really starting to play an effect on 
you and you become a person that's more disappointed than than you are grateful for what you have. And it's a very easy trap to fall into. So I always tell people, like, you know, take a look at your thing, that what, what's really trapped inside. I call it the disappointment trap. Take a look at what's trapped inside you and look at some of the disappointments and really start weighing them out or go solve them or play them through. Confront people that have disappointed you. Maybe there's a different story than what you thought. A lot of times what you think and your side of the story, I always say the pancake's flat, but it's got two sides. It's like, I know you're disappointed. I know you think you deserve more, but you know something? A lot of times there's another side to this story. And maybe there's something you didn't do or maybe something you didn't see or there's a reason that had nothing to do with you and why she broke up with you. So I, I always use the example is, you know, this guy breaks up with this girl. He's heartbroken. You know, the girl dumps him and uh, he's just devastated. And about six months later, he goes on a date and he thinks maybe he likes the girl. And at the end of the date, he says to her, he says, you know, listen, um, we're going to have to go really, really slow because I'm just coming off of a breakup. And I'm like, why? Like, why? What is a breakup that you had six months ago with somebody that this person you're now dealing with has, has no idea of and nothing to do with? Why would your past now work into your future? Mm. Other than what you learned from it, which is the fact that she dumped you for a reason. You were a shitty boyfriend. Or maybe had nothing to do with you. She just wasn't ready for this relationship. And you don't want to be with somebody who's not ready or doesn't want to be in a relationship. So whatever it was, was probably for the better anyway. But the reality of it is don't let your past dictate and creep up into your future. All you want to do is let your lessons you've learned from your past, you want to absorb them, take them, and then move on. The past is done. And do you think that this correlates with both success and failure, where sometimes success also gets in the way of more success? Well, I think people tend to over-celebrate success. Um, I, I think you got to put it in perspective, and I think they overplay failure. I mean, people are very quick to talk about the failure or the disappointment, not as quick to talk about success. But I always think of that, I, I think what's important is, is that you don't want to let success get in the way of more success. And your first idea is not your best idea. So a lot of times you have some success. Like you, if you're at the craps table and you're winning, you don't want to get up, you want to keep playing. But I can't tell you how many salespeople have made a good sale in the morning and then they go out for a big lunch because they feel like they're good. Why? You're hot. There's nothing more important in business than momentum and confidence and some success. The best time for more success is to build on the success you have. The best time to learn and reset is when you've had failure because you know losing will give you the blueprint for winning. When you lose... You win by one point in a basketball game, you're celebrating in the locker room. You lose by one point, and you're ready to make trades and blow up the team. So losing sometimes will bring to light the areas where you need improvement. So you need losing. You need to have losing in, in your diet. You need to have some losing in business to make it real so that it brings your mindset to the forefront of how you can get better. Because really at the end, that's what really business and really life is all about. We're only around for a short time. It's about getting better, being the most effective efficient you could be. So we only have about 300,000, was it maybe 30,000 days, 300,000 days, you know, business that we're going to do in our life. I mean, think about that. It's not a lot of days. So, you know, you're either learning. I always say either green or growing, you're ripe or rotten. So, you know, the goal really is, is to keep growing and keep reinventing yourself. And a lot of times losing does give us that punch in the face, this whack on the side of your head to, to get you there. 
And you talk a lot about uh, value proposition. How do you differentiate a good value prop from a great one? I think it's simple. It's like, and it's a lost art, you know, especially uh, I've, I've been out and about shopping and going to restaurants. Like, it, the, the great value prop is somebody who just stops and really listens to their customers and understands their customers. And they're not just focused on what they're selling. They're more interested in what a customer is trying to buy and what a customer needs and trying to figure out they can help a customer. If you want to have a long-term relationship with somebody, try to figure out you can help them, not how you can sell them. Because, you know, I'm not getting rid of anybody that's trying to help me. You know, if I have somebody that I know is going to help me or wants to help me or will help me, that's the kind of people I want to keep around me. And if you can prove and, and, and bring value, and value is what really value, nobody talks about value, but value is what you could do for someone that they can't do for themselves. Hmm. And I think that you need to be thinking first and foremost, always in a relationship that you're trying to build for business about what value you can provide. And if you don't have that answer at the end of the day, you should really move on to another account, another client. Because if you don't bring value, your relationship's going to be short-lived. I wish more companies would be sending out emails and signs in their window that instead of saying discount, blowout, we're moving everything on, clearance, 30% off, 40% off. No, more value. Come in, we're offering more value. We're increasing our service. We're increasing the, we increase the quality of our product by 30%. But there's so much focus now with the internet on price. And to me, it's a really lazy direction for sales. And it's a, it's a direction that salespeople now have taken, not all, but in a majority. And I tell people out there, don't play with the fool's gold. Don't play with sales, clearances, and blowouts. Focus on value. Focus on increased quality, increased service. And then you can balance it out with getting the price that you deserve. Because I think people will pay for great service and quality and then move off the price a little bit. But if you are if you're sacrificing or giving in on quality, you're giving in on service, then ultimately you're going to have to give in on price. And for the people that don't know, you partnered up with the Yankees. Can you share with us the story of how you guys, how you got by doing that and where it's taking you now? Well, I mean, the Yankees was an amazing relationship that uh, got started around 2003, 2004. And, you know, certainly they didn't need me. I mean, it was an amazing uh, break that Randy Levine and, and Lon Trost and Marty Greenspan. There's a bunch of, you know, that, listen, it's a small little category. The Yankees are a huge conglomerate. And sometimes you could be intimidated when you're going to a big, big company that you want to do some business with. But, again, it goes back to value. And, you know, and are you willing to help? Most people go to the Yankees and think about what the Yankees could do for them. And at some point, I did think about that. But realistically, I went into that meeting with them. I was hoping that maybe we could do something together. And I was trying to figure out what value I could provide. And as it turned out, they were a little nervous about, you know, what was going to happen with all their collectibles being used in all these games. You know, the Yankees is such a big brand, an amazing brand with some of the greatest players of all time. And there's all these kind of innuendos about the product being fraudulent, fake, and they wanted to protect their customers, which you got to give the Yankees a lot of credit. Like a lot of times people don't realize when you have a great brand like the Yankees, it's not just because they were winning. It's not just because of one thing or another, but you always have to remember that they're worried about the quality of their you know, quality of what they were bringing their customer. And they're worrying about the number one thing, which is their customer putting a good product on play. Most people look at just the fact that um, the team that they had on the field, but the Yankees focus on the number one priority always 
which is their customer. And in this case, they're talking to me, they're like, Brandon, how can we protect our customer? How can we put in a system that makes sure that everything they get used is authenticated and it comes from one place? And that was the first thing we really worked on before we got to the money and the partnership was like, how do we protect the fan? How do we protect their customer? And I was willing to get into that with them and educate and go through it and, and figure that out. And it was a complicated process considering that I'm only a small little, it was only a small little part of their business considering all the things the Yankees do. But, you know, if you really care about your customer and you care about your brand, you have to worry about the little things if they affect the most important part of your brand, which is, in this case, their customers. So that's how the Yankees thing got involved. It's was selling their game used and was, you know, working with uh, some of the players and working with the, the, the actual stadium to sell the stuff. When you were working with such uh, big talent and, and a lot of these superstars, how did you go by managing expectations? Prayer. Now, um, again, it goes back to value. You know, it's like, you know, I've developed a lot of relationships with a lot of players and people, but it goes back to value. It's like, you know, you meet a big celebrity and the first thing you think about is like all the things that, you know, you could do or what that celebrity could do for you. But the first thing that has to go through your mind goes back to the paper route with the older woman, which is what value can I provide? Even though it's a celebrity and they have a lot of money or it's a big name or a big company, what value can I provide and can I serve them or solve a problem for them? Because if I can, they may want to keep me around. And that's a big part of how I got a lot of athletes to sign with me was figuring out something that was important to them and helping them solve it. And when you got into memorabilia, how did you go by choosing what type of collectibles to, to sell? Was it just just a trial and error process or did you have a specific strategy? I mean, I had, I had some different strategies. You know, one of them was dreaming big, uh, sampling small and failing quick. So I would try some different things and get too deep into the pool on them. I'd also go with a bunch of different things that I thought would withstand the test of time. I didn't go too much on the quick little, you know, a player was hot on that particular moment. So all of a sudden I'm jumping in and doing it. I went with much more players that had significance and, and had success. I mean, I, 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 you know, I was really sampling. I was trying a lot of things and I was probably failing as much as I was succeeding. It wasn't like, a, you know, it's easy to look at it now, but there was a lot of trial and trial and error. There was a lot of guesses. You know, I had some experience with some of the quality of understanding the brands and some of these players because I was marketing them for years. So I had relationships with a lot of these players and I knew what they were bringing. I knew what they brought to the table. So I had an idea of, you know, where the fan base was going to follow them and if they had a deep enough fan base that was worth putting a product line together around. I think there's a little bit of a lost art now with the celebrity and certainly it's changed because of social media, you know, depending on how active they are. So how, how companies and people view even the collectibles or the talent that they associate with, a lot has to do with their popularity online. Kids are much more moved on that end than necessarily how well they play on the field and that sort of thing. So it's a little more complicated now when you're trying to hire a player to help grow your business. But I'm still a fan of it. I still think people will wear, buy, eat, sleep, drink what their favorite celebrity and players eat and sleep and buy. And so if you can make the right connection, um, it can really help a company grow. And I, I still love making those matches. I still love helping blowing up companies using talent. And so you have built so many strong connections with both businesses and also players. Um, do you think that as long as you are bringing value, that's where connections are built the quickest? 
Well, I don't say they built the quickest. That, that's the most solid because those relationships building the way, that way take longer. You know, if you want to build a relationship, then it, it's not a quick wham, bam, thank you, ma'am kind of thing. So I think you can build the most solid relationships by taking your time and creating value and producing value and thinking about the other person as much as you're thinking about yourself. you got to think about the customer and the things they need help with, and it doesn't always necessarily help you. That's why you got to forget yourself in order to fill yourself. And most people every day are waking up to think about how they can fill their pockets and how they can be taken care of and what they need. But the really great salespeople are thinking about others. You know, they're thinking about serving and finding out problems or situations that their customers or relationships, you know, what they need and you're trying to help them get it. And you've grown Steiner to over 70 to, to 100 um, people working for you. Can you share with me some of your thoughts on talent acquisition and how important um, is it to, to have understanding, agreement, and commitment when hiring? Well, I think, I think, you know, I think I learned the hard way. I probably made more mistakes in talent acquisition, you know, hiring the wrong people, staying with the wrong people, not firing the, the people quick enough, not taking care of some of the better people better. I mean, there's so many different factors of, of talent acquisition, of finding the right people, hiring and keeping the right people and getting rid of the wrong people. I mean, and there's so many philosophies about it. But, and I would say, not to get overly confusing about it, is I would say definitely if you really want to stay on top of your business, you're going to put some time into understanding where your people are at and making sure that they're growing and you're doing everything you can to help them. So that And, and the people that are progressing, that are getting better, and, and, and are trying to help you win. Those are the ones that you can't pay enough attention to. But usually it's the bad employees that suck you dry, the ones that you can't really necessarily count on. You keep thinking they're going to turn the corner any day, and they end up getting all your energy. I think, you know, the simple way is, you know, in, in just two parts to, to answer your question. One, I think when you're doing reviews, you know, people get too caught up in reviews. I try to get into reviews often, which is, do more of this, do less of that. That's my review. I really like the way you're doing this, so I want you to do more of it. And if you could spin it this way a little more, that, that I think it's going to be much more attractive giving your strengths and stop doing this or do this do less of this. I think the agree and uh, understanding is I think what happens is a lot, of, a lot of bosses look for loyalty. And a lot of bosses look for longevity with an employee. I look for understanding and agreement. I think that a lot of employees, they stick around a long time. And if you ask them to give them a truth pill, they're like, you know, look, I've been here a long time, but I don't agree with this company's philosophy. I don't even understand it. So I think what's really important is, and, and is to walk around and, and ask your employees, do you agree and understand what we're trying to do here as a company? When I give employees duties and things to do, I ask them if they agree with it and understand. Because once an employee agrees and understands what the company or what me as your, your boss is trying to do, then commitment and then passion will follow. I think the hardest thing when I talk to other CEOs and people that are running businesses is getting people on the same page, getting people to follow your direction. Like you're trying to get the market correct. You're trying to fight vendors. You have so many different fights you're in the middle of on a day-to-day -day basis as an entrepreneur or even running a business. And most CEOs will tell you their number one fight is with their own staff, getting them to agree and understand what you're trying to do and getting them to get you back. 
And uh, I think you know, a lot of that can get resolved in the hiring process or more in the day-to-day of having the confrontational, hey, do you agree and understand what we're trying to do here? And keeping that door somewhat open so that when employees don't agree and understand, they can come in and voice their opinion and not have the heads chopped off. And Talent if- acquisition, if you forget everything I told you up to this point, it's if you're building a business or starting to grow one, um, you better you better fasten your seatbelt in and take that part of it really seriously because you're not going far if you don't have the people that can help you win. And is this why with talent acquisition you say the line fill your people's mind with training rather than trouble? Well, I think that it's all about growing. You know, people talk about being happy. Like I don't even know what that means. I mean, sometimes an employee will come and say, "I'm not happy. I think I'm leaving. I'm going to go take another job." I'm like you think. I didn't promise you as your employer to, 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 for happiness. Like, but in a sense, really what, what, what makes and what keeps employees happy is growth, challenge, and enjoying who they're doing it with and who they're doing it for. So a lot of times employees don't leave companies, they leave people. And more importantly, I think employees, when they're not growing and they're not challenged, that's really what they mean to say is I'm not growing and I'm not challenged. That leads to unhappiness. When you find somebody that's happy, it's because they're challenged. It's because they're growing. They feel like they're learning. And they're doing the things that they're doing with people that they like, and they like who they're doing it for. So if you're a boss and you're out there, think about it. If you were an, if you were an employee working for you, are you challenged? Are you growing? Are you, do you like who you're doing it with? Do you like who you're doing it for? And my last question for you is, if you were to be stripped away from all of your money, resources, and network today, and you have to start all over, what are the first three things you would do and why? Well, the most important thing is I realize where my real relationships are, you know, with my strengths. And I, I think the most important thing is to find out where value is needed. If I was going to go start something new there's no sense in doing something that isn't necessary that you can't provide real value. So first thing you want to do is, is you want to figure out your relationships and what gives you, who, who are the people around you that give you the best chance to win that you could team up with. And the second thing is, is can I find a, a, a what's next or what else in the market? Can I find something that is being done, but nowhere near done as well as it should be done? Can I find something that there's something that's being done, but just needs to be done a lot better? And if I could provide that kind of value, if I was stripped away from everything, that's where I would head. Uh, I would head to the what else and what's next aspect of the concept that I had in my mind. And the other thing is, you know, again, just because you have a feeling, there's feelings and facts. So, you know, just because you have a feeling that something should work, sample it. Dream big. Sample small and fail quick. So it's, it's okay to fail. It's okay to come up with a bunch of ideas, and sometimes some of them don't work. But what you don't want to do is go all in on, uh, on a new idea without sampling it. Brendan, I appreciate you being on the show. If people want to keep up with you and learn um, what you have going on, where's the best place to find you? I mean, you get all my books on Amazon. You know, you got to have balls and living on purpose. But I'm pretty active on Facebook and LinkedIn for the most part, if you want to interact with me. But I'm on Instagram and Twitter. But I'm a, if you follow me on LinkedIn, I, I usually respond to all, the, you know, all your messages. And same thing with Facebook. You know, I love those two vehicles. I, I'm very, very, uh, I'm pretty aggressive on those and trying to put as much out there as I can. Brandon, I appreciate you being on the show. Thanks, man. Have a great day. 
Thanks for tuning in again to today's episode. Whenever you are ready, the best way that Chris can help you is through his exclusive Facebook Marketing Mastermind group, where you and a community of like-minded individuals can ask your questions and share the answers. You will also find exclusive content that Chris will regularly share to the group that is only available to group members. Join now at locate852.com slash FB. The link is also in the description.